just as you are before your God. Come. 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 So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. That which we could not do, you have accomplished. That the righteousness we could not attain, you have provided. And the punishment that we could not bear, you have taken upon yourself. Lord, we thank you for the mercies and grace that you provide each and every day for the redemption that you have given, for the sanctification you are working in us today. We ask, Lord, you continue to strengthen us, that we be your faithful people, walking in your strength to what is to be your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. He is exalted, the King is exalted on high. I will praise Him. He is exalted, the King is exalted, and I will praise His name. He is the Lord, forever His truth shall reign. Heaven and earth rejoice in His holy name. He is exalted, the King is exalted on high. He is exalted, the King is exalted on high. I will praise Him. He is exalted, the King is exalted, and I will praise His name. He is the Lord, forever and true shall reign. Heaven and earth rejoice in his holy name. He is exalted, the king is exalted on high. He is exalted, the king is exalted on high. I will praise him. He is exalted, the king is exalted, and I will praise his name. He is the Lord, forever is true shall reign. Heaven and earth rejoice in his holy name. He is exalted, the king is exalted on high. He is exalted, the king is exalted on high. He is exalted, the King is exalted on high.
All right. Just a couple of things, and some of this actually is good news for once. That's always good. Just uh, two reminders, though. Well, actually, two reminders and hopefully an update because I didn't get the update before just now. Um, remember to continue to pray for Olivia, Mike and Jan's granddaughter. They, she did get that diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, so they're going to be treating that and working on that, but that's still a long road to hoe in that. How old is she? 19. So be in prayer for her and remember her. I'm sure she would appreciate it. Um, also, if you would remember uh, Miss Clara, Clara Patterson, she is going to some doctor's appointments this week. She's been having some heart issues, and they are still working on those and trying to figure it out. They've changed her medication for um, shaking. It's not Parkinson's. They don't know why she's shaking, but they've changed medication three times, and it has done exactly zero. So they're still trying to fidget with that. So if you'd remember her, she would also greatly appreciate it. Did they get test results back on Christina? So irregular, irregular heartbeat, basically. So the asthma attacks are making the irregular heartbeat worse. <laughs> all right, so all right, so be in prayer for Christina. I'm sure she would appreciate that as well. Um, church council next Sunday. So you have been warned. We got a couple of things we got to figure out. Uh, I, I wrote it down to remember. I did, but you're gonna have to wait a second because I'll do the question first, and then we'll see. Me, I almost know. I almost know what I'm doing. Almost, almost. All right. This is the one you say out loud. Which Old Testament prophet did Peter quote on the day of Pentecost? <laughs> you read that one, Joel. Now, who actually went and read Joel? Say, say, uh-huh. Mm -hmm. You're like, I knew that one, so I didn't look it up. See, the whole point was so that you... Did you actually read it? All right. Do you think you know the answer? No, it wasn't. That's why I thought you guys... I thought this was perfect. Three chapters, you can knock this... Oh, we got two. We, we've got two. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> All right. Did Peter quote everything from Joel? You would be correct. Remember, we always talk about the now, not yet of salvation. So, in the work of Christ, you have been saved, but in real time, you are being saved, and there is coming a date in the future in the ushering in of the kingdom in which you will be saved. Past, present, future, all realities, all being accomplished. You have the same thing going on in prophecy. So, in Joel, you have prophecies concerning the day of Pentecost. Peter talks about those, and they he talks about them being fulfilled. If you read Joel, so this is my polite way of saying, go home and read the book of Joel. It will do you good. So, again, three whole chapters. You can read it before you get home. So whoever's driving, have the passenger read it out loud. <laughs> and pay attention. Ten and two, and listen. There you go. Um, almost mid-verse, Joel moves from talking about the events that are going to occur on the day of Pentecost to the events that are going to occur at the day of the Lord, meaning the last days when Christ returns, ushers in the kingdom, sin and death are dealt with, and the glorious reign of the end of Revelation is ushered in. So as you're reading your Old Testament, this is why I always tell you, when you're reading your prophets or reading the book of Revelation, you never, ever, ever, don't read your Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. You will get it wrong, and you will be like that Herald Camping crowd, you know, he's coming back on Tuesday. Well, it wasn't really Tuesday. Or that group whose name I can never remember from the 1900s who were determined that Jesus was coming back, and so they were out standing in the field, and he didn't return. So they went home and redid their math, and they figured out they missed it by a week. So they went back the next week, and guess what? 
or my other still wrong exactly or my other favorite remember was it was 88 reasons why jesus was coming back in 1988 and so you know what happened in 1989 right 1989 reasons why jesus is coming back in 19 we got we found one that meant we were wrong last year can't take him anywhere (laughs) (laughs) who gave you a drumstick god yeah i i walked into that one all right you can can you tell it's going to be one of those days all right i'm gonna have to ask at some point somebody moves too because once again this side of the room do not be offended because everybody is sitting over here today so when i'm looking at them it's not it's nothing personal it's not that you guys didn't shower or anything it's just everybody's over there again a couple people moved last week and it was helpful but i'm not telling you to get up and move don't i'm not just know I'm silently judging you, and it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> All of that to say, you don't read the events of Scripture with the events in your newspaper. Now, should you read your newspaper through light of Scripture? And the answer to that is yes. Understand what is being communicated in your Bible, what is being communicated Old Testament to New Testament, and then understand the events of your world accordingly. But do not make the one-to-one. Be like, okay, this is that, and this is that. and That's how you end up with the guy explaining who was that um, that the, the locusts of Revelation were Apache helicopters. I'm serious. That was, yeah, Hal Lindsey. Hal Lindsey. I always remember because he looks kind of like G. Gordon Liddy, and I don't know why that always sticks into my brain. But yeah, you do stuff like that because you're missing the point. Joel's point was talking about glorifying God, that God in his unfolding work of redemption is accomplishing things. There will be great blessings as God pours out his spirit, and there will be great blessings and great judgment when God pours out his wrath and mercy at the end. And both of those are contained in the same chapter of the prophecy. Understanding how the Holy Spirit-inspired apostles and Christ himself used the Old Testament and stopping where they stop is a good rule of thumb. So there you go. Told you we'd have a lot more on it this week. So don't say this one out loud. And everybody in my Sunday school class better get this one right. <laughs> I know you understand this one. You got you. This is an easy one. But again, the reason for the question is important. What two cities were destroyed by burning sulfur? Shh. I know you know it. That's not the point. Again, reason for the question. There's actual Bible work to be done. Don't you love how these always seem to work out together? So, all right. Last chance, by you guys, I know you've, what else am I forgetting? Anything going once, going twice, sold. In that case, something to do with Happy Mother's Day. Wait a minute, Denny. You're not up yet. I know you can't see Cameron. (laughs) (laughs) And she said you couldn't see her. (laughs) Can't take that man anywhere. I, I didn't encourage him. All right. So this has something to do with Happy Mother's Day, and I was not privy to this. So go ahead.
want to remind everybody, I forgot to tell the pastor, uh, the singing is May 22nd. We want you all to be here. Invite all your family, friends, everybody. It's going to be a great night. What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting God. What a blessedness, what a peace of mind, leaning on the everlasting God. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all.
Sorry about that. I'm borrowing the computer for a second because somehow or another, I have smudged my glasses and I can't see a thing out of my left eye right now. Ah, eh, well. So, I know. So Cameron is running to try to grab a lens wipe because she thought she had one in her purse and didn't, and I don't have one on me either. And that's not doing me a whole lot of good having them wherever. So, ah. reminders: we are Exodus 20. Um, explanation real quick. No, I'm not setting aside time for Mother's Day. <laughs> uh, thank you. I promise it won't take me a sec. Because I keep these little wet wipes around typically to, because I'm sitting going, hey, look at that. Thank you. I can see. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So, <laughs> I said, normally I have one on me or I have one in the back there, and for one time I needed it. I don't. Isn't that how that usually works? Um, not setting aside special time on Mother's Day simply because, well, two reasons. One, I think it's the worst job I do all year, our Mother's Day and Father's Day. It's hard to set aside times for it. It's hard to kind of devote a Sunday just to that and cover everything. Second reason, a couple of different things we wanted to do this year that would be 
uh, in line with something else and to, to work it out with the schedule on how to get through all the books and things that we're doing. Somebody beat you to it, so I'm good to go. Thank you. So just hold those in the back. Thank you. <laughs> so we are going to continue through Mother's Day and Father's Day to work through Exodus, and we will stop again and take a break from Exodus at Pentecost. And then you're probably on your own as far as getting out of Exodus until uh, October. So that means we are in the flow of everything that has gone on. If you have no idea what's going on, you'll have to find uh, YouTube from the website. All that stuff's in the bulletin. It'll do good for you. We are settled in on the mountain at Sinai. God has come down, which means what comes next? Come on, you know this one. God has come down the mountain to deliver what? It's Ten Commandments time. Dun, da, da, da. That's Exodus 20. If you don't know that from now on, you should. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. It's good for you. Called the uh, the Ten Words, the Decalogue. This is the list. There has been some controversy for reasons I will never fully understand in the last couple of years. Trying to argue that Exodus 34 is the actual list of commandments. Without going into a ton of detail, the answer to that is no. This is your list. It's repeated in Deuteronomy 5, which we will actually cover a little bit this morning as we go through. God is delivering the law to his people. Before he gets into all of the stuff in Leviticus that nobody ever reads, because when you read your Bible, I know what you all do. You get to Leviticus and you start skimming real fast and get through. All right. And in your defense, I had a Hebrew professor at seminary who asked the class, he goes, what do you get out of Leviticus? And that was his answer. He goes, you get out of it as fast as you can. I'm like, dude, you're a Hebrew professor. It's terrible. And yet I appreciated that. <laughs> Dr. Stelhammer was an interesting character. He was a very odd individual, to say the least. If you want to understand Leviticus, though, and you should try to understand Leviticus, so I'm encouraging you, after you've read Joel this week, start working on Leviticus. It will, it will also do you good. Read Leviticus through the lens of the Ten Commandments. It is your summary statement of the law. What Leviticus is expounding upon is, how do I honor God? How do I love my neighbor? How do I do all of these things in Israel, in this world? That's what Leviticus is expanding. Christian, that responsibility hasn't changed. When Jesus was asked to summarize the law, what did he give you? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Can I help you out? That's a summary of the two, what we call, tables of the law. The vertical component, love the Lord your God. That's the first part of your commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. The horizontal component, that is your second portion of the commandments. Jesus was summarizing the summary of the law. <laughs> With that said, we're going to take two weeks to do this. We are going to cover the vertical component first, and next week we will dive into the how you deal with each other. So with all of that said, it's a short enough section. I think we can actually get through this in a normal brain today. So we're going to read it and then dive in. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 7. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. And yes, we're cutting right there, because from there we start to make a hinge, and we will explain all of that next week. So you don't have to know that now. 
What you do have to know first, though, is let's dive into verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying. So, first things first, Moses is where right now? Say that again. He Sort of. He's more down the mountain than he is up the mountain. End of Exodus 19. Moses went down to the mountain, went down to the people, and told them. Moses is the mediator. He is a prophet for Israel. At this point, he is the prophet. But other prophets will come, and Moses is pointing to something greater. We've talked about that. But Moses is not going to be the only one to hear this. God has sent him down the mountain to give the commands about the borders and not to rush the mountain to go up to the Lord. Remember, the people are like, no, 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 we're good. We don't need, you didn't have to tell us that. Big, scary, mountain quaking, thunder, the whole nine yards. We're, we're going to stay right here. God is speaking to his people. These commandments are not for Moses to distill to them. They are for who? Everyone. These are for the people. That's first. Second. This is really, don't overthink this, please. Don't overthink this, because this will make sense later on. Who is speaking? <laughs> For a split second, you went, wait a minute, is that a trick question? <laughs> so I warned you, it's not a trick question. Not trying to trap. God is speaking to his people, which means the command being given is whose command? God's command. Let's fast forward to Deuteronomy 5. The Lord our God, remember Deuteronomy is Moses' summary of everything that has happened. Everything that has gone on, Moses summarizes in Deuteronomy in his final speech. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, that's here. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us. With all of us alive here today, the Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire while I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. Now, I just realized I'm giving you a third piece of homework. So you've got Joel, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy 5, okay? So if you were going to do this in priorities, do Joel first, Deuteronomy 5 second, and then Leviticus third. That way you're, you kind of make progress. It's like when they tell you to pay off debt, you know, pay off the smallest one first. Same idea, read the shortest stuff first. Why do I want you to read Deuteronomy 5? Moses is summarizing the commandments. He's summarizing the events of, that are going on around Mount Sinai. He's summarizing everything that's happened. Notice how many times Moses says the words, God said or God commanded. Because he says them about every third word, it feels like. It's kind of like when you read uh, the book of Daniel. Every time Daniel talks to Nebuchadnezzar, he says the word king as often as humanly possible. And it's kind of annoying because it's difficult to read. Because Daniel stands in, it tells you that Daniel goes before Nebuchadnezzar the king, king of Babylon. And he spoke to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of all of Babylon. And he said to the king, and he's like, I get it, the man is the king. What's the point? Well, the point is, is Nebuchadnezzar the king? The answer is no, he's the king of Babylon, but he is not the king. Moses in Deuteronomy 5, speaking to Israel, is literally taking that golden corral frying pan commercial and just be like, God said, God commanded, and God told us, and God said to us, and God did this, and God said that. What authority does Moses have? None. When he went to the people, did they believe him? No. He did the miraculous works in front of them. They were like, okay, we like the miracles. And then when it didn't go well with Pharaoh, what did they say? We don't like you anymore. Every time we've turned around on our trip to this mountain, Every time something doesn't go exactly right, what does Moses have to hear? Something negative, something complaining, something 
yes, the, the whining, the complaining, the four-year-old on the, no, on, the, on the road trip, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we're all going to die. Now, what is going on here with these commandments is God has come down to the mountain. So to use the actual descriptions that are given throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh has appeared, and he is declaring his commanded law to his people. And I get this. You're going, we understand that. You've made that point 17 times already. Why do you keep hammering it to us the way Moses hammered it to them? And the answer is because if you want to understand the complaint of the world, you have to make sure you understand where you are supposed to stand. This is the answer to your, um, my brain just went blank, your History Channel National Geographic theology that I'm always complaining about. So, cause you, and you've got a few months. Because let me see, what it's May, right? So... Yeah, you've got until at least November before they start breaking out all the all the weird Jesus didn't exist documentaries and stuff, and then they hammer you with them from November, December, all the way through Easter. The reason I point this out is because if you read secular historians, if you try to read this is going to sound this is an oxymoron, but it actually exists. Secular students of the Bible, which why you would not believe in the claims of Christianity but still study the Bible, is a bizarre concept to me. But they, these people exist, and they write books, and they make money, and the whole nine yards. So what they will tell you is what you see in Israel is you see that the Israelites in this part of the world are doing the same thing that the proto-Babylonians or that the Egyptians are doing over here. And, and they'll run to the code of Hammurabi and explain how that is akin to the laws of Moses and how all of these cultures are developing the same things at the same times in sort of the same ways. And because of that, there's absolutely nothing special going on here in the Old Testament. That's a secular worldview. My point to this is, does God give you that option? The answer is no, he doesn't. God spoke these words. When Moses gets to reiterate it to the Israelites, he takes out the golden corral frying pan and says what? God spoke. God commanded. God proclaimed. Get a backhand in there. I've, had, I've been a little too forehand heavy. He goes through this over and over and over again. The Bible doesn't let you stand in a place where you have a borrowing from cultures. You don't have a borrowing. You don't have correlation. You don't have individual cultures just coming to a consensus at the same time. You have God speaking to his people, declaring his law, declaring how they are supposed to live as his people in the kingdom that he is establishing for them. By the way, Christian, nothing's changed. This is why... Christian churches typically still proclaim the Ten Commandments and typically still talk about what Moses talks about in Deuteronomy. And unfortunately, why too many Christian churches run away from Leviticus. That's why I'm telling you to read Leviticus. It will do you, in fact, lots and lots of good. The summary hasn't changed. So do you put fences around your roof? This is always my favorite example. It's an easy one to remember. And the answer is no. But Leviticus commands that you should. I, there's a technical name. Lou, what's the technical name? You always remember these things better than I do. There it is. Say that out loud again. Parapet. It's the little fence thing you build around your roof. And the reason they were commanded to do this is because you would actually do stuff on your roof. If you had a cocktail party, well, you wouldn't really have a cocktail party in Israel, but if you were having a cookout or some sort, there'd be people that would go up on the roof and you would sit there. You would have people that would sleep there because of the cool evenings, depending on the time of year. It was literally living space. It was basically a flat roof. Is that really a safe place to hang out? No. So one of the ways that you loved your neighbor is you protected him by him going up in your roof. There's actually a border. 
Because if you've ever almost fallen off the roof, and I actually have, that's a different story for a different day, it's a traumatizing experience. I was putting up Christmas lights for my grandparents, and like an idiot wore wind pants and a windbreaker. What could go wrong on a shingled roof? And realized it went halfway down, I just went. And still to this day have the image of my 5'2", 130-pound mother like this. What are you going to do? I was going to catch you. Move. I'm going to land on you. We're both going to be unconscious, bleeding on the sidewalk, and who's going to call the ambulance? Get out of the way. Let me hit and go call help. Climbed, weaseled my way. I was hanging on by the garter, by the uh, gu gutter. Can't spit. Thank you. I can't spit out English today. Hanging on by the gutter and managed to shimmy back up there. Yeah. If there had been a little parapet, I would have been better protected. Of course, I shouldn't have been on the roof in the first place, especially in those clothes. Now, you don't do that because do you invite people onto your roof? When people are on your roof, you say what? Get off my roof! What are you doing? Unless you have a bag of toys? No! Hey, Denny got that one. There you go. But do we have rules about how you make a fence? Do we have rules about whether or not you should leash your dog? Rules about how you take care of your property? This is why we have car insurance laws. You're going to drive a car on the highway, you should do what? Car insurance is our modern equivalent of the fence on your roof. It's a protection not just for you, but for the neighbor around you. What Leviticus is doing is explaining how those people in that world at that time lived out these commands from God. That's why they're non-negotiables for Israel. That's why some of these things should be non-negotiables for you. You still have a responsibility to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, which means you should be living a serving life based on who God is, what he has done for you, that figures out how do I honor and serve neighbor, how do I protect him from me and the things that are around me in a way that honors God. None of this has changed. We do a disservice when we take the Israelites' law and we go, oh, oh, I didn't do that. Okay, no twisting. I was going to get to the store this week and told myself twice I was going to go and then didn't go. And then I got here this morning and went, that was why I had to go. So I'm going this week, Denny. I promise you, I'm going this week. Because Denny was mad at me. He's like, I'll order it. And I'm like, no, no, I'll go. So it's extra taped up, and that's my fault. I apologize. So I know. Monday I won't be able to go, but I'm going to go Tuesday. That's the plan. So with all of that said, let's actually dive into this. At least a little bit. We're not quite there yet. Verse 2. I am the Lord your God. Stop. Let's understand this rightly. We lose stuff in English, and I, and I understand, well, I'm, I can't say I understand. I get why we follow this tradition. I still don't like it. But every time I point this, I point this out, I'm going to keep pointing it out because it's for a good reminder. The NASB does this. I know the NIV does this. I don't exactly know exactly how many translations do this. But every time you see the word Lord with a weird font like that, all capitalized, that is not the Hebrew word Adonai, which is the word for Lord. That is Yahweh, the name of God. I am Yahweh, your God. Why is that important? Because he's connecting again to all that he is. He is creator. He is sustainer. He is their God. Now, question, why is he their God? First of all, is God God over everyone? Yes. But is there a special relationship here between God and the children of Israel? Yes. Why? Genesis 17, 
When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. God is remaking, well, not remaking, restating and reiterating that covenant that he has made with Abraham. He restates it with Isaac. He restates it with Jacob. He restates it again when Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And he restates it again here with the children. This was part of the kickoff back in Exodus, Exodus 6. God spoke further to Moses. Remember, this is after Moses has come, spoken to Pharaoh, done the signs before the Israelites, done some of the signs before Pharaoh, and it just doesn't work out for him. So God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched hand and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you from out, out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God promised it to Abraham. He promised it to all the patriarchs. He promised it to Moses. He promised it to the people. He's reminding them of that promise here. And just in case you forgot what that promise means, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Remember when Pharaoh, when try to say Moses and then say Pharaoh and smush them into one name and you just get what just came out of my mouth. Do you remember when Moses went before Pharaoh and he said, Yahweh has commanded us to go worship. And Pharaoh said, what? It was Yahweh. <laughs> Why do I care? I'm Pharaoh over Egypt. You're not. Go away. Well, who is this Yahweh? Savior, redeemer, deliverer, perfecter of his people. Exodus 13, go back a couple of chapters. Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of this place. I've said this before, I'll say it again. If you want to understand the call of the prophets in your Old Testament to help make sense of it, understand the work that God has undertaken in Exodus. If you want to understand the reason for the call of the law, understand the work that God has undertaken in Exodus. What's one of the bases? Base, what's the plural of, yeah, never mind. One of the foundations, there we go, of the book of Leviticus. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. Why? Because I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. What's the purpose of Leviticus? We talked about this in Sunday school class a few weeks ago when we were going through Leviticus. The law is not a means of salvation. Never has been, never will be, never was meant to be. It's a means of what? What? Revealing sin, that's one thing, but for the Israelites who have been redeemed of God, what is Leviticus meant to be? It's a means of sanctification. 
So it means, how do I, as Ephesians 2 puts it, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of works, and not of yourselves, as the gift of God, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, pre- to do the good works prepared beforehand. What are these good works? Honoring God, loving him, loving neighbor. That's what Leviticus is supposed to be. How do I do that? How do I make sure of this? By walking in holiness as God has proclaimed and God has called. That is what this is supposed to be. God is not just a redeemer. He is a sanctifier, and this is one of the steps in that. He has taken them from the unconquerable enemy that is Egypt. He has redeemed them by his work. He will now sanctify them by his word. This is what you see going on in the prophets. This is what you see going on in the law. And by the way, Christian, none of that has changed at all. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. What was the price again? Christ. Therefore, glorify God in your body. We talk about this. Why do we care how you live? Because we're nosy Christians. Duh. Everybody knows that. (laughs) In seriousness, though, why do I care how I live? We really got Clark on that one. Why do I care how I live? For the same reason you should care how you live, for the same reason I care what my kids do, for the same reason I care how my wife walks in Christ. Because I want to honor the God who has given himself literally for me. I wish to honor the sacrifice, to be redeemed in the flesh, to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, to be a part of that being saved. Remember, I am saved, I will be saved, I am being saved. I want to be an active participant in that. I joked a couple of weeks ago that we get that footprints in the sand thing wrong, that too often when we're in the midst of our sin, there should be drag marks where the Holy Spirit's like, come on, you're getting through this. Because there are days it feels like that. But as a Christian who loves the Lord my God, who loves what he has done for me. I don't want him dragging me kicking and screaming into the kingdom. I want to do what? I want to walk in rejoicing, encouraging others, proclaiming his mercies and his goodness. I want to be an active participant, not a passive one. That's the call of sanctification. That's what Israel is being given right here. They are being reminded that you are supposed to walk in this way, not because God is some big old cosmic sky meanie who's going to smack you if you don't do it, but because he has loved you in spite of you. He has redeemed you in spite of you. He is upholding you, once again, as we have seen with the Israelites, in spite of them, and he will accomplish his purposes, his promises, and his planning. Again, in spite of them. Therefore, because I wish to be on board with all this, because I love the God who has died for me, has done all of this for me, who who is sanctifying me, I wish to walk in the newness of life, as Paul puts it. So, that's all the introduction to the commandments. (laughs) But you can't understand it without all of that. So with all of that said, ready to dive in? Of course you are. You shall, verse 3, have no other gods before me. Why not? If you can ask that question with a straight face, you didn't read the first two verses and understand them. (laughs) We just explained why not. Isaiah 45. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me 
I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light, creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. We don't understand, typically, just how awesome God's power is. See, how do you make darkness? You turn off the light, right? But God dwells in unapproachable light. (laughs) Is there darkness in the presence of that great light? No! So, at some point, God has to do what? We don't even process this. Try to hurt your brain today. It'll be good for you. He has to make darkness. Because in God, there is no shadow. There is no darkness. This is just one of those simple little things that, does this make sense to you? Because I can promise you, it doesn't make any sense to me. But God, who is the light, who is the source of light, created darkness for his people. I don't get how that's accomplished, but he does. That's one of the reasons why it's a great praise here from Isaiah, because I can't understand it, which is good news for me. Again, if I could explain to you in perfect human detail everything about God, what would be true of God? He'd be less than my own mind. Welcome to every man-made religion. Welcome to the God of Mormonism. Welcome to the God of Jehovah's Witnesses. Welcome to the God of any cult you can imagine. They are explainable perfectly. Why? Because I can explain stuff I made up. I can't explain things that I have not invented. Now, you shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because of all that he has done and all that he is. And what he is is the most obvious truth in human history. Remember, how much time does your Bible spend proving the existence of God? No, no, none. First verse in the Bible, you know this one. What is it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If that's the beginning of your book, what's your first question? Who's God? Where did he come from? And your Bible's answer is, I don't care. He is. How do I know that he is? Well, because Paul looks at you and says, because you have eyes, right? You have a brain, right? You can see the world around you. You can experience it. You can understand it. You know all of these things. This is humanity's problem. You want to understand the weirdness of your world? Understand the most fundamental rejection of the world. Proverbs 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In order to understand the world we live in, what must I first understand? the God who made it. That's where the explanations that you're talking about in your Bible come from. Your Bible's explaining who this God is, not to defend him, but so that you can understand him, so that you can then understand how to live and work and move in this world. Reject the fundamental truth that God exists, has done these things, and is who he claims to be. Reject that. You not only have no basis for wisdom, but you have no basis for knowledge. You have no basis for understanding in the world that you live in. So reject God, reject wisdom. Walk away from God, walk away from understanding of the world. Paul expounds on this in 1 Corinthians 1. Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach what? Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This has been 
one of the distinctions that's been drawn culturally in the in the American church probably the last what year is it? Oh my goodness, I got to keep adding decades now. The last 50 years or so. We have rejected other than. The call of the Christian in the world is to live other than the world. Now, that does not mean you don't have a job. That does not mean you don't go to school. It does not mean you don't learn things about the world. But what, I, what it does mean is that you do not walk in their wisdom and you do not walk in their ways. What we've done in the church probably the last half century, yeah, it probably goes back maybe farther than that, but I'm just, I'm just going to cut it off at 50. What we've done the last half century is we've said, well, but we'd like to borrow from what they've got over there and then we'll do it over here in the church. Or we'd like to borrow that idea, and we'd like to expound on it over here in the church. Because the answer was, well, the more we can get comfortable with them, the more we'll do what? We'll influence them. Name me the one time in human history that us borrowing from the world has led to them getting more like us. <laughs> I'll wait. Because the answer is, it doesn't. This is why the Israelites were commanded what when they went into the land? Kill everybody, destroy everything, and don't do what above everything else? Don't do what? Don't intermarry with them. <laughs> and you go, but, but that's just weird. Why? Well, it's simple. You give your sons and daughters in marriage to the pagans, and you know what you end up with? More pagans. Because you're going to go along to get along. Men, we're good at this, right? All right. If it makes you happy, that's what we'll do. We'll just, that's fine. <laughs> you weren't supposed to say that part out loud, especially on Mother's Day. <laughs> Denny's answer, it never makes him happy. Shh. <laughs> You're going to get us all in trouble. But what's the answer? What's easier to do, to stand firm in the truth, to draw a line and have discord in your house, or to just be like, all right, fine, we'll give up on that little thing. We'll do this, we'll do that. We'll have these little surrenders here, these little surrenders there. And then what happens? All of a sudden, you look up and you go, where am I and how did I get here? And the answer is, I, yeah, you, you kept surrendering until you eventually, what was left? There's nothing left to give up. You gave it all away. That's the warning. Rejecting the foundational principle of who God is, what he has done and why that matters, surrendering there in a culture and bringing anything else is just a waste. And this is what we have done in worship. This is what we've done in proclamation of the word. This is what we've done in apologetics. We've done this in every avenue of life. I sat, weirdest Bible study I've ever been invited to. I sat in a Bible study with a retired Baptist pastor, his Jewish friend, a Methodist pastor, a Presbyterian pastor, and a guy who goes to the Church of the Brethren but he's not a member of the church. He's still a member of the Methodist church, even though he's gone to the Church of the Brethren for 54 years because his wife was a member of that church and she played the piano, so he goes there. But he's still a member of the Methodist church. I'm going, I have entered the twilight zone. Now, in that crowd, guess how many of them actually believed the Bible? Guess which one that was? Yeah. I went for four weeks. I'm a glutton for punishment with apparently too much free time. And that was the argument. The argument that was being made to me was we had to redefine the terms of Scripture based upon the world around us. We had to reread Paul's explanations in Romans based on what the culture was doing. I'm like, no! 
no, we understand the culture in light of what Paul is expounding on in Romans, because what Paul is expounding on in Romans is built upon the law that Moses gave, which is built upon the foundations of who God is and what he's doing. And I, it, it was a lot more profound than that, than that little explanation. But I would say that, and they'd all just kind of look at me like, you actually believe this stuff. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I do. And then I was kind of, then I really felt like an animal at a zoo for a couple of weeks, because I felt like I kept getting poked and prodded, because they were like, let's see what he thinks about this. It was an interesting the only I, I was I was just about to the point where I was going to stop going because I would come home and it's, I feel like my head was going to explode. And then one of the guys moved and they broke up the Bible study and I was kind of grateful. But that is more prevalent than you would think. When I say a retired Baptist pastor, I mean he was a pastor in the association I was in. I was in the Dan Valley Association in northwestern North Carolina, part of the North Carolina Baptist State Convention, part of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he was a retired pastor from... Uh, Spray Baptist Church in our association. And I'm going, you taught these people these things? We were meeting in that church's basement. He was friends with the current pastor, and the current pastor went to one of those Bible studies and never came back because he didn't want to deal with the problem because he realized what was being taught and he didn't want to have the argument. That's the problem. We go along to get along. It's more prevalent than you would think. This is what's going on in your culture around you now. This is why regardless of where you stand. And you guys have been, I've been on record on this from March. If you want to keep your distance, if you want to bathe yourself in hand sanitizer, I won't complain at you. I won't say you're doing the wrong thing. If you wear a mask, I don't say a word to you. If you don't want to do those things, guess whose health it is? It's yours. You take care of you. You try to do the best you can for other people, and you take care of yourself as you, as, as you see fit. If you've wondered why all of that stuff was so readily accepted, it's the mindset that I'm talking about now. It's the go along to get along. Regardless of whether you think good, bad, or ugly, that's not the argument I want to have with you. The argument I'm talking about is how do we see the world and why do we see the world that way is the breakdown that has gone on in so many places. We no longer have a category for you do that, and while I disagree with you, I don't think you're evil, and I'll do this, and while you disagree with me, I don't think we're evil. There are all sorts of places we can do that on. Foundational truths are not one of them. God is God. I am not. He is the one who is and was and is to come. And I am required to walk in that knowledge. And anything that causes me to deviate from that, I have got to draw a line and stand firm on. Other things we can talk about. Non-negotiables, we can't. So that's one. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. Always remember, it's because they are the lesser thing. The heavens and what is in them, where do they come from? God, Genesis 1, 6 through 8, and 14 through 15. The earth and what's in it, where does it come from? God, Genesis 1, 9 through 12, and 24 and 25. The water and what's in it, where does it come from? God, Genesis 1, 20 through 22. To make an image of those things and proclaim them as God is to, one, violate the first commandment, and two, to attempt to worship the lesser thing. Therefore, don't even do that, and if you do, you shall not worship them or serve them. Shouldn't that be nor, if we were going to get this in proper English? Hang on, verse 5. Verse 5! <laughs> there it is. Yeah, shouldn't that be worship them nor serve them? I don't know. I'm not an English teacher, nor do I play one on TV. Now, why not? Why shouldn't I worship or serve them? Well, one, it's a violation, but two, it's dumb. What's the rule? 
don't do dumb things. It's one of the simple rules of humanity. That's the standing rule. We need to figure out a way to work that into our Constitution. I think that needs to be in there. Maybe I'll get that in the bulletin, change our motto. Calvary Baptist Church, don't do dumb things. <laughs> what do I mean when I say it's dumb? It's silly, and it, and it turns itself away from wisdom. Don't believe me or take my word for this. Listen to Isaiah. Isaiah 44. Those who fashion a graven image, all of them are futile. Their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame. For the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. Isaiah goes on. If you want to have some fun, read Isaiah 44. He makes a simple point. So you go take a tree and you cut down a tree. How do you decide which half of it you burn in the fire to cook your food and heat your home and which half of it makes a God that is going to give you good crops? <laughs> See, when you put it like that, you suddenly stand there looking at a tree feeling real stupid, don't you? Like, ooh, that part, that'll make a really nice God on the mantle. That, that's no good. We'll just cook with that part. It's the same stupid tree. <laughs> and then he makes the point that you cake your idol and you carve it and you make it beautiful and then you pick it up and you put it on the mantle by yourself because what can't it do? It can't move. So you pick it up and you put it on the mantle, and then you pray to it and offer sacrifices in the hopes that it'll do something for you. See, what's the word for that? See, that's dumb. What's the rule? Don't do dumb things. See, this reject God, reject wisdom, reject knowledge, reject the very ability to think. Enter into idolatry, what do you get? You get things like that. This is why John tells you, 1 John 5, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And I know what you're thinking. You're going, but I don't do that. I don't cut down trees and carve idols and melt silver down into images. No, you don't. But is your job more important than your family? Is your family more important than your God? Are your weekend activities more important than your worship? Are your arguments with your friends and family or your conversations with your sister more important than your prayer time and your Bible reading? I don't know. I'm asking. You know who else should be asking? You. And you know who you should be asking? You. Where does your ministry always start? Your first ministry is always at home, and it starts with me. I can't do you any good leading you in discipleship if I'm not doing what? Being a disciple. So I need to ask these questions. No, we don't go carve down trees. At least I really hope you don't. And the reason I say hope is because I actually had a neighbor who did. We, um, Cameron and I were sitting on a back deck one time, and our neighbor literally across our little yard, all of a sudden she gets out, and she pulls out this little stone thing. She puts it down in the middle of her yard, and then she went in the house and put on this hat, and she walked out in the yard and started dancing around it and singing. <laughs> and I was sitting there going, oh, my goodness, this is actually happening. Okay. Yeah, she was an interesting character. Yeah, her 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 dad was actually one of the um one of the trustees at the at the Methodist church in town. I was like, "How?" and he's like, "Don't ask." <laughs> he bought her house, he took care of her bills. That was it was interesting. But yeah, she would periodically a couple times a week get out her little idol and dance around it and sing songs and then go back in the house and it was just like, "Wow. I have interesting neighbors suddenly." <laughs> Pray for that woman. She used to walk her cat in a stroller with the straps and everything. 
we thought she actually had a baby, and then we realized it was a cat in a stroller. So life can be interesting sometimes. See, that's a breakdown. That's a brokenness. And you're like, see, I'm not that bad. I get that. You've just figured out how to put your idol in a different category. You figured out how to follow it in a different way. If you don't believe me, then explain to me why we all have credit cards. <laughs> you're better for it. What do we tell ourselves when we get one? Why did we get it? Emergencies. Just in case, you know, that way if something breaks in the car and I ain't got $500 on me, I can get the car fixed and still go to work. And then you're in Walmart and you're like, well, it's not an emergency, but I need that. <laughs> shing, shing, shing. Why? Because what's our idol? I am. I'm my idol. My comfort. My joy. And we all know that that one thing will make me so ecstatically happy, right? We tell the kids, no, we're not buying that toy. Why? Because we know that that toy won't make you happy, and yet we do what? the exact same thing. Idolatry just moves. Guard your heart. Be prepared. Ask yourself tough questions. And if you are not willing to ask yourself tough questions, then find someone you trust and give them permission to do it. Hey, you have permission to ask me all the hard questions. And then let them, because it's needed. Your ministry starts at home, and it starts with you. So you shall not worship them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now let's just dispel the myth. We've done this before, but it's always worth taking a second. So you're a pagan idolater, engaged in idolatry, forsaking God. Does God then look at your children and be like, well, I'm not giving his kids any grace. Forget that dude. His kids are going to be just as evil as he is. Is that how that works? No. No, God didn't curse your kids because of your sin. Who did? You did! Why did your kid grow up to be a pagan idolater? It's like that, remember that bad um, drug commercial from the 80s when I was a kid? Oh. Who taught you how to do this stuff, son? Remember that? You, Dad, I learned it from watching you. Does nobody remember this commercial? Yeah, th oh, thank you. Somebody's gonna remember the dad find he finds the drugs in the kid's room, and the kid's got all the drug stuff, and the dad's over there getting high in the other room, and he's like, "Who taught you this, son?" Kids cried. It's like, but that's actually a perfect description of biblical truth. The kid doesn't grow up to do drugs because the world demanded he did it, and he didn't grow up to do drugs because dad did it. He grew up because who does he want to be like? And what example is he following? The one that's been given to him. This is why Moses tells him to do what in Deuteronomy? Know who God is and do what? Talk about these things. Teach them to your children. Talk about it when you go to about the way. Talk about them at home. Talk about them at work. Talk about them all these places. Why? Because by setting the example, godly parents, more often than not, produce godly children. Who produce godly children. This is discipleship. I've made this argument before. Parents get mad at me. If there is fighting and strife and rebellion in your house between you and your kids, odds are there's a sin area that hasn't been dealt with. May not be yours, might be theirs, but there's something wrong. The most important thing we can do is what? Root it out, find it, and what do we do with sin? Kill it. Yes, with extreme prejudice. This is the rule in my house. We don't negotiate with terrorists. And children are terrorists. They are. They will hold you hostage, your emotions, your siblings, the peace of your house. How many times have you not said something because you just want it to be peace and quiet? And I don't want to deal with it right now. That's terrorism. You're afraid of what's going to happen if you address the problem. Therefore, you don't do it. 
you want to see what this looks like? Go watch the news in Portland. And I'm not kidding. Because we're afraid of the backlash of what would happen if we go after these people breaking the law, we allow them to do what? Continue to break the law. Regardless of your politics, if you break the law, the police deserve to do what to you? They should arrest you. That's how this works. And if you're going to break the law, you play stupid games. You win stupid prizes. What happens in our houses? I don't want to deal with that right now. You just surrender to the terrorists. No, we don't negotiate with terrorists. What do you do to terrorists if you're the government? You don't lock them up. You kill the terrorists. You kill, you don't negotiate. You, as I tell my wife all the time, you don't negotiate with the terrorists, you shoot them in the face. So when the children start negotiating and taking hostages, you execute the terrorists. That doesn't mean you kill the child, but you stop being afraid of the consequences. You deal with the thing when? Now. You should do that at home. You should do that at work. You should do that in the world. When there is sin, we do what? We stand up and we deal with it. Whether it's in my heart, my family's heart, anyone I have the relationship with. Figure out how to deal with it and deal with it. If we don't, we pick the wrong path. Again, as the Templar at the end of a uh, yes, thank you. Last Crusade, Indiana Jones' Last Crusade. Remember the Nazi picks the wrong cup, and what does the guy say? You have chosen poorly. We don't want to choose poorly. We want to choose wisely. The wisely is the following after God. Instead of following after our pagan idolatry, instead of following after the things that make me comfortable, I want to follow after God, the one who is and the one who does. Who is he? He is the one who saves, the one who redeems, the one who stands up for the people. And what does he do? He is the one who has made the dead to live. This is Ezekiel 37. Israel, the people of God, not walking in that way, dead in their transgressions and sins. What does God do with the dry bones? He makes them live. He puts flesh upon them. Christian, what's the call? Ephesians 2 that I, that I, I mentioned earlier. By grace you have been saved through faith. How does that chapter start? That's chap that's, I started in verse 8. How, what's chapter 1? For you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which we all walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Just like everybody else, we were dead. But God. But God has made us alive in Christ. That's why we follow. Without him, we're dead ninnies. I mean, think about that. Reject God, reject wisdom. So without God, you're dead and you're I don't know, is there, is there a less polite word I should use for someone who does dumb things? <laughs> oh, we lost Clark again. <laughs> See, I'm, that's actually a biblical word. The Greek word is moros, and that's where we get the word moron from. So it sounds more harsh for some odd reason. We need to bring back ninny. Call more people ninny. Be like you're four years old again in the playground. Be more polite. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. We got to do a better job with this one because we understand this one wrongly. And you know what I mean by that? Because I know what you're all thinking. You're all thinking that you now need to guard what? You're now thinking I need to guard my mouth and the things that I say. That's part of it, but that's the lesser thing. And look, and there is something to this. What do we mean when we say taking the name of the Lord your God in vain? Part of it is how you speak. You shouldn't be declaring God's name that way. When you use God's name as a curse word, what are you really proclaiming? You're, you're proclaiming your displeasure. You're proclaiming that you want something done about this. You don't need to proclaim him. That's not how your speech should be used. 
My brethren, do not swear by heaven or by earth with any oath, but your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. James 5. Instead, try to come up with a word. That's why I'm, that's why I'm trying to figure out how to describe this. Because we're talking about when you reject God, you reject wisdom, you walk in the lack of wisdom. A good word for lack of wisdom is something that is dumb or stupid. I'm not calling you stupid, but I'm saying what you have done is stupid in that manner. Be careful how you talk. Be careful how you think. If that is as far as you take this commandment, though, you've missed it. And you've missed it entirely. When we say the name of God, where is that name supposed to be proclaimed? No, where is it supposed to be proclaimed? And how is it supposed to be proclaimed? In prayer? In worship? In reading? And how you speak to your children, and how you speak to your wife, and how you speak to your neighbors, and how you speak to that stranger at Walmart. It's supposed to be proclaimed in your life in how you live and walk. You proclaim God in your life. What part of your life is an act of worship? Second John 7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in his teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Ephesians 5.11 tells you what? Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. When we talk about taking the name of the Lord your God in vain, we're talking about also how you walk. You, Christian, why do you call yourself that? Because you're a follower of Christ. You have taken his name. Do not take it and then walk astray. Because you have taken his name and walked in your sin. This is, again, why sanctification is so important. This is why we say when there are those who are walking astray, we call them to account. Because you don't get to use our name to do that. You either got to give up that or you give up the name. Pick one. That's the argument that's being made. Because to do so is to walk in his name wrongly. What message does that send to the world? What message does that send about our fellowship? What message does that declare to the outside. Again, one of the things we've rejected too often is our other than aspect of Christianity, that we are to walk other than the ways of the world. So when we look just like them, but we're Christian, what have we said? See, this was the argument we made back when Moses gets found by uh, Zipporah and her sisters. What did they run back and tell their dad? A man, but what kind of man rescued us? An Egyptian man. Was Moses an Egyptian man? Well, he looks like a duck, and he smells like a duck, and he quacks like a duck. He's a duck. If he looks like an Egyptian, and he acts like the Egyptians, and he walks like the Egyptians, you know, like the, that song was on the radio this morning as I drove in here. Bangles, suddenly I got my 80s going on. Then what is he? He's an Egyptian. We've talked about this. What is God doing? He's getting Israel out of Egypt, but what else is he doing? Getting Egypt out of Israel. Christian. You have been redeemed from the death of the world. What are you doing with the rest of your life? Getting the world out of you. This is sanctification. Forsaking the things of the world. Taking up your cross to die daily. To follow after Christ. This is how you refuse to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Start there. If you understand it like that, you know what I don't have to worry about? 
I don't have to worry about how you talk. You know why? It'll get worked out. It'll work itself out. This is why there are no Protestant exorcists. I'm serious. Why are there no Protestant exorcists? Because you call a Catholic church and be like, my child is demon-possessed, and we send in the priest, and he does all the voodoo stuff and tries to get the demon out, right? You've seen the movie from the 70s. Why don't we do that as Protestants? Because if you're saved and in Christ, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The demon can't live there if God lives there. What's the cure for some demon possession? The gospel. Getting you saved. The proclamation of the gospel. Who can do that? Well, the Holy Spirit does that, but who can proclaim the gospel? Everybody. I don't need you to call some bizarre professional with a crucifix and some holy water. I need you to proclaim Christ. Proclaim Christ. Holy Spirit comes in, demons start going out. Simple. End of discussion. Why? Because you're now walking in Christ. You are now walking after his name. You are now walking in his ways. And he is spurring you to completion. And you will, because of your great love for him, walk in such a manner. This is why this matters. Because do we have people that do otherwise in churches? Oh, yeah. 2 Corinthians 11. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder! Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. See, this is why this matters. If we're never willing to draw a line in the sand against the world, and if we're always willing to go along to get along, we have rejected not just one of the commandments, but the entire basis of the vertical column. We have rejected the entirety of who and what he is proclaiming to us. If we're unwilling to stand apart from the world, then where do we want to live? And as John would tell you, you went out of us because you were not of us. This is the reminder. This is what we're guarding our hearts against. This is why we're checking ourselves. This is why we're evaluating who we are, what we're doing, and the most important question, which is why we're doing it. It's not just a matter of I did good things. You can do great things on the pathway to hell. Wasn't this the argument that people came to Jesus? We, we cast out demons and we healed the sick all in your name. And he said to them what? Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. It's not just what you do, it's why you do it. If I can get the why figured out, if I can get you seeking to honor God in who you are, how you live, where you go, and what you do, I don't, ha I don't have to worry about the what. The what will take care of itself because the why is the foundation of who God is, what he has done, and what he is doing. The rest of it works itself out. That's why it's much less important to worry about taking the name of the Lord your God in vain as a curse and much more important about worrying about it as a walk. Get the walk right and everything else will fall into place. We stand firm. Why? After, excuse me, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We should never move from that place. Repent and believe the gospel. That's every day. I have found sin in my life. What do I do? Nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. For that too, Christ has died. For that too, his grace covers. For that 
two, I can now walk in the newness of life, praising God, rejoicing in the salvation that he has accomplished, trusting in the power of his Holy Spirit to carry me to the day of completion. And tomorrow when I wake up and I find out something else dark and scary that I didn't know existed, what do I do? Same thing, over and over again. Taking up my cross daily, day in, day out, walking in him. Everything else works itself out because everything else will be a flowing from the work of the Holy Spirit in his people. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we thank you for the chance that we have as your people to gather, for the promises that you have made, for the promises you have fulfilled, for the word that you have given, for the commands that you have provided. Lord, strengthen us that as your people we would walk in your ways, recognizing the sin that is in us and unfortunately is so often around, but knowing that your grace covers, your mercy abounds, and your sacrifice is secure. Lord, strengthen us that we be your people, faithfully walking until the day of completion. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross. My death today from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on Uh, just quick reminder, uh, council members next week, mothers, ladies, grab your stuff. <laughs> I think it's the best way to put it. I think Cameron's got somebody in charge of that in the back somewhere. So at the door. So there you go. So happy Mother's Day.
Remember your family. Remember your discipleship. Seek to walk in a way that honors God. Let's pray. Again, Lord, as we leave, strengthen us. Ground us in your word that we would be guided by the knowledge of who you are and all that we have done, all that you have done, that our works would be pleasing in your sight, offered as sacrifices unto Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.